from PRX. Stew. Stew. D. D. E. E. Studio. That's it. Right? Studio. 360 with Carl Anderson. Kurt Anderson. Kurt Anderson. I listen to it on the uh, radio in my car. Well, don't be sniffy about it. I'm not pens. being sniffy. I think I'm you mean, are. No, no. You've got a nose for it. Oh, gosh. Wow. What are you saying over there? Today on the show... I sing it with a sound effect instead of the noun. In that kind of immediacy of needing to improvise, that's where the gold comes. I was beginning to find my voice as an artist. Keep listening. Stay right there. Don't go anywhere. Stay sick. You want to keep abreast of the best new comedy people? Okay. Kate Berlant and John Early. They are very funny comedians, also collaborators, also best friends. There's a short video of theirs that I love that demonstrates their chemistry. It's called Paris, and the premise is simple. John and Kate play a pair of pretentious millennials reminiscing about their recent trips to France. People are scared. People here are scared. It's a fear-based culture in Paris. It's a luxury-based It's culture. a fear-based culture in America, and it's, it's based in fear. Absolutely. I feel like I was born in Paris. Oh, my God, me too. So I asked the two of them to come to the studio to find out if they really were pretentious millennials and if they really were good friends. The very first day that we ever hung out, the day that we met, uh, we were like kind of holding hands, promising to have yeah. a pilot within the yeah. year. Really? Literally. Well, no, I'm not kidding. The first day we spent, we hung out all day. We were screaming with laughter. We both signed to a commercial agency like within a year of being friends, and we wrote each other in as beneficiaries. Really? <laughs> <laughs> and I, of course, never booked a commercial. But we did immediately have this urgency and chemistry immediately after meeting john essentially lived with me at my apartment for two years yeah i would go home once we i ran out of underwear yeah like or like a show (laughs) exactly you almost could buy it and turn it into a show (laughs) yes exactly you john have said that meeting her was like seeing your first john waters movie and i was wondering does that mean because she's so dirty and weird and and cheap or what um no no that's hilarious uh there's no kind of aesthetic crossover with John uh-huh. Waters there but it was the the feeling of being recognized like when I first saw John Waters movie I uh-huh. sobbed you know I felt just seen and uh, included John Waters made me so excited to make things yep. so that that's what I meant by that so is there a sketch idea that you thought like nah, I don't really agree with him or I don't really agree with her how it should be done how do you actually in an instance work that out there have been moments where we've come up against each other but like we're always like, able and physically in each other's face physically we come yeah, we up very against violent. each other yeah <laughs> um sometimes I can be very um like controlling in in the, in the stuff that I make, and I, and I feel like Kate has like helped me like loosen up my process a little bit. So it's not like oh I think this is funny. Mm, I don't. E- no, no, I can't even imagine. No, honestly, <laughs> truly. So he's bossy. What are you? What, and the, what, I'm in a bath permanently. Yeah. <laughs> I think hopefully some of your yeah your Aryan march toward <laughs> yeah. success. You could play a Nazi, by me. the way. The listeners can't see. I know, but, but you you would. I would cast you as a Nazi. And well, I am, of course, a Jew. So yeah. we can kind of play that. I think that's why it works. I yeah. do love a period drama for us about connecting despite our yeah. backgrounds. Do you have like comedy heroes? I think when I saw Waiting for Guffin, the Christopher Guest movie, that for me was like a lightning bolt of imagine. like. Oh, wow. Yeah. It was like seeing something that I was convinced was made for me. And your gift your gift of like monologuing and people being given a platform to speak about themselves, like that is her specialty comedically. Right. 
people who really shouldn't be given a platform, but it's, <laughs> yeah, it's exactly. funny when they are. Totally, exactly. Totally. They're yeah. like relishing the platform. They can't get off of it. Yeah. 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 And and other than John Waters, John, yeah. who who do you love in well, the, uh, of past heroes? Yeah. The, it's it's all women. It's like it's uh, uh, Lisa Kudrow, Laura Dern, Amy Sedaris, Jennifer Saunders, Sandra Bernhardt. Mm. Because why? Well, I never thought men were funny, and I also think um, – uh, masculinity was something that I didn't fit into as a young person, uh-huh. and clearly now I'm very butch and very mass. <laughs> yeah, um, but, and, and a Nazi, <laughs> yeah, and a Nazi, a burgeoning Nazi. But yeah, I, I was. Women were always my protectors as a kid. You know, like my my female friends were the ones who kept me safe. Right. And it's interesting that you were such a a couple in a professional yeah, sense, yeah. which is kind of rare today. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Hi. Um, yeah. No. We we do like to think of ourselves like hearkening back to something a little more like timeless. Yes. You know. Yes. Burns uh, and Allen. Burns and Allen. Nichols and May. Yeah. French and Saunders. Simon and Schuster. Yes. <laughs> so you do sketch comedy. Do you prefer to have it figured out and written? Everything that we do together specifically is very improvised. We are now working on some new projects where we're really forcing ourselves to write. Yes. The rumors are true. Writing is hard. (laughs) It is not easy. Yeah. In this Vimeo series that we just did, 555, a lot of the moments... Available now. Which we'll be talking about. Thank you. I would assume, of course, Kurt. But a lot of that is improvised. And so even... I, I find that there is so much freedom and restriction, right? And so... In that kind of immediacy of needing to improvise, that's where the gold comes. Yes, absolutely. There was a lovely little strange show that Netflix did last year called The Characters. Yes. In which you each independently had a show, a half hour. And it was this eight comedians each got a half hour to yeah. fill, right? Yeah. And, and do literally whatever you wanted. Yeah, it was a deeply unmarketable concept, but we're so <laughs> grateful for it. Yeah. It well, it sounds like a sketch comedian's dream. It right. also sounds terrifying. Like, really? I can do anything? Yikes. Right. Yeah. Oh, I was this close to turning it down. Yeah. I was like, I'm going to go on a road trip. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because yeah. it is deeply scary, but we're so lucky to have oh, done it. Oh, my God, yeah. yeah. And one of your characters in that show who just kind of freaks me out and I find riveting <laughs> in that uh, show called Jason. Yes. Uh, I have children, not much younger than you, and uh-huh. made me daughters, and it made me worry about my daughters. <laughs> um, uh, he's this twitchy, dim-witted bro, I guess. Yeah. Right? Uh, yeah. Uh, here is Jason. Do you like to travel? No. I get that. <laughs> Are you okay? Yeah. What's your favorite food? Lasagna. Yeah. If I'm being honest, uh huh. Pizza. <laughs> Pizza's great. Yeah. Um, how did you get this scar on your forehead? I was injured in a trust fall. That is Mary Wiseman uh, playing your character's date. So talk about what this guy looks like and how you developed him physically. Well, you know, he's he's definitely like I had counselors at like Christian camps when I was a kid. Really, like. Like would like as we were falling asleep, like I'm like ten years old and they're like eighteen, and they're like telling us about the first time they ever had made love to a woman, you know, and I was like, this is deeply inappropriate, yeah. and I like had them fired. And kind I, like, of told my, I literally yeah. had a, a counselor fired. That's- but like, but you know, I, I there are there, he's like kind of an Aaron Cartery like methed out like center part like puka shell necklace yeah. type of guy, um, and very it seems to me specifically straight. Yes. Mm-hmm. yes. Right? Yeah, absolutely. I used to really take pleasure in, like, imitating straight guys to straight guys in yeah. high school. They, like, loved it. 
they like love being made fun of in that way. It's funny that you say that because what it reminded me of is Richard Pryor 35 years ago making fun of a white uh, doing a white guy. Wow, totally, yeah. totally. Yeah. yeah, no, there's a weird power in it. In your episode, in the characters, Kate, you play this famous conceptual artist. Let's listen to a little bit of her being interviewed by an art critic. You are the artist Denise Saint Roy. Denise, would you say that your process is a natural one? Yes. Talk about that. How does that? Just did. I don't discuss my process. I never have, and I never will. I think that art, right? The T actually is hard. People over the years aren't. It's art. Yeah. The force of that, even just audibly. Prevents us from finding out about your process. Yeah. Um, okay. It's well. almost like the T comes down, becomes an X. Don't talk about it. Uh, by the way, that interviewer is played by Damien Young. Oh, the great Damien Young. I know. So lucky that um, I him. And then, I, I like that, and then I found out that you're the daughter of a big-time visual artist. Oh, I love that. Tony Berlant. <laughs> Hi, Dad. Um, <laughs> therefore, I presume that you perhaps encountered people like that growing up? Well, it's it's funny because, yeah, my my I grew up like around artists, but I remember going to art openings with my dad when I was really young. And I noticed that all the artists were in sort of regular clothes. And then people would come to the art openings with like a hat that's like a grain silo on their (laughs) head. (laughs) And those were never the artists. And I remember my dad, when I was young, at some point pointing that out. And my dad always has, was always so embarrassed. Like it's so embarrassing to be like, I'm an artist. Yeah, no, I just create. And that is what I do. But I think that even though I wasn't around people so directly who were as absurdly pretentious as yes. this character. Yes. I do think, and in myself, I can slip into that kind of yeah. self-importance. Which I, one of the reasons I have come to love you in the last month as I've l- learned of your work is is that academic jargon that you use oh, as you. part of comedy. And I may, there may be a small audience, but man, I am a member of that audience thank that loves so that much. more than anything. <laughs> so let's say here we are on public radio and you're one of those uh, insufferable academics who use language like that. As we go on to the next subject, which is your show, telling us what 555 is. I love it. Oh, what is 555? I mean, immediately when you start talking about it, the the frame is more about what it excludes, not what the frame contains, right? So as I begin to describe it, what I leave out almost becomes amplified. That almost becomes the real descriptor. And the liminal area between what yes. you left out Those and what Those liminal channels. Yeah, I don't want to enter into creating a mosaic of, of terminology in which we become brutalized and in which right. ideas cannot exist. For yeah. me, it's just soda, popcorn, and we're watching the movie. <laughs> uh, so, John, do tell us what 555 is actually It's about. a bunch of shorts. <laughs> we put in a bag, shook it up. Yep. <laughs> it's five short films. Uh, that we made with Andrew. Oh, that's Dion. the five 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 idea. And, yes. I get it. Of course, what happened? I mean, that that did come from just trying to describe five shorts. But then we realized there's a beautiful thematic connection between five five five, the fake number used in movies and television. Right. The unreal showbiz phone exchange. We in no way set out to make a satire of Hollywood. Or, but it is. But it is, whether Whoops. we like it or not. Oopsie Daisy. <laughs> and you play. In each one, two different characters, yeah, and with uh, yeah. sort of different plots going on. Yeah, they're all sort of focus on these different relationships between two people. Each yeah. short right. that are played by John and myself in these radically different roles. Uh, here's a clip from one of them, and you are you guys are in an acting class. Ooh, I can't wait. Who do you think helped you build those walls of feeling like a failure? Nothing's coming up. I don't. Don't think. No, it's my dad. Right. Right in there, right there. 
He's right there. Trust me. Well, he's not. Yeah, he is. He is. Even though you don't see him, just pretend that you see him. Shut the f*** up. I'm not kidding you. <laughs> um, the teacher, uh, who's magnificent in that sketch, is played by Christian Johnson. Yes. Bec- so did this come out of uh, bad, stupid acting classes you've taken? But I, w- I will just say, because when I was becoming friends with John, John talking about theater school was the funniest oh, yeah. thing in the world to me. And yeah. I could not get enough of it. Uh-huh. I was rejected from acting <laughs> from the Tisch department. So, hi, Tish. How are you doing? you like me now. But – which I think was actually for me probably better because I would have become a monster. <laughs> I, I have a constant comedy tragedy mask on my face, much to my – it's like I cannot hold back. Yeah. I'm like pained expressions in line at Dwayne Reed. Like it make, I can't help it. Uh, Kate Berlant and John Early, uh, I would just love it if you come in here all the time and we'll just do this every day. Oh, my Please, God. Please, I'll come run. I'll move back to New York. What a pleasure. Thank you. Oh, so fun, it's our Kurt. pleasure. Thank you so much, Kurt. Uh, you can see John Early and Kate Berlant uh, on the characters on Netflix, but that's now old. That's a year old. Oh, so old. Or together on their new series, 555 on Vimeo. Yes. Vimeo.com. Slash 555. Five. You guessed it, 5. Uh, thanks, kids. Thank thanks, you. Kurt. <laughs> so you watch a movie, and one character says to another character, say, hey, uh, what's your number, man? What's the other character always say? 555. Five 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 five. The number's five five five. Five five five. Five five five. Call in at five five five. Give me a ring. I'm at five five five. All this month, we Studio 360-ites are asking you to tell your friends who are podcast virgins what happens when a listener loves a podcast very, very much. If somebody in your life has never listened to a podcast, you'd be surprised. Show them how simple and convenient it is. And tell the world about your latest favorite on social media. And if you do, use the hashtag tripod. That's T-R-Y-P-O-D. T-R-Y-P-O-D tripod. And thanks for evangelizing. Coming up. Somebody who didn't see the great film Train Spotting as a cautionary tale about heroin. I think as a drug addict, I would use any excuse to justify my own using. So for me, I just use Train Spotting as an excuse to use. How Gary Frazier got clean and ended up working on the new Train Spotting sequel. That's up next in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC. Brexit. 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 The British people have voted to leave the European Union. We are leaving the European Union. The British pound took the biggest ever one-day fall Joe Friday. Joe Cox's killer allegedly yelled Britain first. Reports of hate crime in Wales were up 60%. The referendum was probably one of the most divisive votes in all British history. The people of the UK voted to pull out of the European Union last summer. And already there is a terrific new novel by Ali Smith called Autumn that is set against a post-Brexit backdrop. And all of the British nationalism and xenophobia and confusion and anxiety that it involved. All across the country, people felt it was the wrong thing. All across the country, people felt it was the right thing. All across the country, people felt they'd really lost. All across the country... 
people felt they'd really won. All across the country, people felt they'd done the right thing and other people had done the wrong thing. All across the country, people looked up Google. What is EU? All across the country, people looked up Google. Move to Scotland. All across the country, people looked up Google. Irish passport applications. And that is Ali Smith reading from her new novel, Autumn. Ali, welcome to Studio 360. Thank you, Kurt. So this book has all the hallmarks of great fiction. It has literary allusions and ideas, and it's somewhat formally experimental. Uh, it, it has this epic time frame over many decades. It is also a bit, however, as they say, ripped from the headlines. The thing about, what should we say, ripped from the headlines, it, it's a funny old thing, writing books. I, I've been thinking about writing a seasonal quartet, as it were, four books, which would all be called the names of the, simply the names of the seasons, which would then go to make up a bigger book for about 20 years. And then uh, a couple of years ago, I wrote a book which my publisher here in the UK because I was writing really late to a deadline that was far gone by the time I handed it in. They did it within six weeks. And then I was like, you can make this beautiful a book in six weeks. Uh, so I began to think about whether it would be possible to do that quartet that I've been waiting to do. And then I began to think about uh, what it would mean to have a contemporary novel. And I started writing this novel. And as I was writing it, we came up to the referendum here in the UK and, it, you know, it was really obvious that there was a, a pretty big division uh, coming and uh, and it came. And so I asked my publisher in, in the end, could I simply have an extra month to attend to the novel to make sure that the novel, I, I kind of felt like I would be cheating the novel if I, if it wasn't, you know, if it didn't face the contemporary or the contemporary didn't face it. Right. Um, your characters in Autumn, your main characters, Elizabeth and Daniel, uh, embody in various ways these political currents and struggles. But the book is really about uh, their singular personal um, relationship. Now, to give a flavor of that uh, and a glimpse of their friendship, I would love you to read one of their chats, the, the, the passage where she's oh, yeah. uh, 11 and he's 80-something, and they're, and they're walking along the canal. Sure. The word Jimkana, Daniel said, is a wonderful word a word grown from several languages. Words don't get grown, Elizabeth said. They do, Daniel said. Words aren't plants, Elizabeth said. Words are themselves, organisms, Daniel said. Oregano-isms, Elizabeth said. Herbal and verbal, Daniel said. Language is like poppies. It just takes something to churn the earth round them up. And when it does, up come the sleeping words, bright red, fresh, blowing about. Then the seed heads rattle, the seeds fall out. Then there's even more language waiting to come up. Uh, that's from Autumn, this old man talking to this little girl, their friends. Um, in addition to Elizabeth and Daniel, there is this remarkable third character who kind of looms over their lives, Pauline Boaty, who was this real-life British pop artist in the 1960s. And at first, as I'm reading this novel, I think, oh, this is an interesting character that Ali Smith made up because I'd never heard of her. And then I, I felt stupid for having never heard of her. I know. You know what? If there's a spirit behind this book, uh, it's the spirit of Pauline Boaty, who was um, the one and only female UK pop 
artist. Uh, she was right in at the makings of the, the British pop movement. She was a glorious kind of inventive and experimental figure in her art um, and also in the world. I mean, she was a very beautiful woman who, when uh, Ken Russell was making his film, quite a famous film here called Pop Goes the Easel, which is about four seminal uh, British pop artists. Boti is at the centre of that film. Our programme tonight consists of one single film that we've made about four young artists. They're four painters who turn for their subject matter to the world of pop art. Pauline Boaty, she's 24, 24 yesterday in fact. She's just started to exhibit her work properly. I've always had very vivid dreams and I can remember them very, very easily. And I've used the kind of atmosphere of the dreams in my collages. She's working in collage in a way that nobody else is at that point. And she 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 has a bit part uh, in in the movie Alfie making out she, with she the has. star. She's got uh, an uncredited bit part uh, getting off with Michael Caine behind a row of clothes <laughs> yeah. in a dry cleaner shop in Alfie. There was this manageress of a dry cleaner, <laughs> and I was getting a suit clean in the bargain. She was she was uh, an actress. She was on the stage. She was a dancer in Ready Steady Go, which is a seminal pop program here. Um, she was a speaker on radio about things way ahead of her time, right. like class and gender. And then she died. It, and she and she wait, died at the age of twenty eight. And she died of cancer. Right. And she died because um, she was pregnant. She went to the doctor. The doctor said we found a tumor. Uh, and she wouldn't harm the baby by taking anything chemical to right. sort the cancer. So she died. She which, had the which, baby. Which, which, she died. which makes her story uh, already kind of extraordinary, all the more tragic and romantic, and makes the fact that I haven't heard of her and you hadn't heard of her until later kind of, I, I don't get it. No, no, I don't get it either. I had happened on a picture of um, Pauline Booty's and I was like, what's that picture? I've never seen anything like that. And I looked at Pauline Booty and I was like, why do all these pictures, there aren't that many of them, but why do they stop at 1966? And she was called the Bardot of something? She was called the Wimbledon Bardot. Right, 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 right. (laughs) So, uh, I mean, serious novelists, and you're a serious novelist, aren't supposed to uh, write about what's happening now because you're supposed to be writing for the ages. Listen, (laughs) I guess you abandoned that. We don't get to choose what we write about. Is is the at least I don't get to choose what I write about. I mean, I I I, these books are going to be seasonal books. They're going to be about you know the long view. They're going to be about something at the basis of time, which is diachronic, which is cyclic. What, what does diachronic mean? Diachronic, okay, so synchronic if you imagine is like we live from day to day Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, right, Sunday right. we're living along a line. Diachronic is on Tuesday you think about when you were 30 years old and two seconds later you think about when you were uh-huh, three years uh-huh, old uh-huh. and three seconds later you think about when you're going to be in your 80s and so the, diachronic is like dimensional you know, kind of um, right, and how we do all the time, even though, as you describe it, it exactly. sounds like some crazy art. <laughs> just isn't. It's just what we're like. We are. We are the craziest art, and it is completely natural to us yeah. to live all our times at once, even yeah. the ones we haven't lived yet. I feel like you're my professor. I'm. I'm learning a lot. Um, <laughs> um, so, 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 autumn is the first of these uh, four. I, does that mean you then move to winter and spring and summer in that order? You Not- know, you're learning so well. <laughs> Thank you, professor. <laughs> Yeah, it's going to be that simple, that chronological. We're going to go to winter next. Ali Smith, thanks so much. I I really, really enjoyed the book, and I totally enjoyed talking to you. So thank you Uh, very much. What what a pleasure it's been talking to you. Uh, See you around. See you next time. See you for winter. Thank you very much, Kurt. I'll see you next season. 
Uh, Autumn is available everywhere now. And we have stumbled into an accidental theme in this week's show. Ali Smith is Scottish. And Edinburgh is the setting of the new film T2, Train Spotting. Choose life. Choose Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and hope that someone somewhere cares. Missed you, mate. It is the sequel to the great 90s film about heroin addicts in Edinburgh. Like the first movie, the sequel's based on a novel by Irvine Welsh and once again directed by the Oscar-winning director Danny Boyle. Gary Frazier was the second unit director on the movie, which means he filmed the stuff you don't much notice. Establishing shots, images for quick-cut montages, footage of the doubles doing stunts. But for him, the job was a big break and a sign of the progress he's made from when the first train spotting came out in 1996. Back then, he was a young junkie in a rough part of Edinburgh, basically living the movie. You get up in the morning, you put some heroin in foil, you burn it, you look at your phone, you see how many customers are wanting some product, you go away and get the product, you bag it up, you have people come to your door, you sell it, you go back, get more product, take a bit for yourself, put some heroin in foil, you burn it, you look at your phone, you see how many customers are wanting some product, you go away and get the product. You when I was 19, a typical day was selling drugs, taking drugs, making money and losing money. Choose life, choose a job, choose a career, choose a family, choose a big television, choose washing machines, cars, compact displays and electrical tinnery. When the first train spotting came out in 1996, I watched it and I think as a drug addict, I would use any excuse to justify my own using. So for me, I just used train spotting as an excuse to use. One of the first things that we said was, we are not junkies because everybody in train spotting is injecting and we were burning heroin and foil at the time. So, you know, we were just starting out on our trail of destruction we heroin use so yeah we were ignorant but I suspect we were just justifying our own drug using at the time well I think this answer never changes because it's just the same one but when my son was born I was oh, I can't remember he's 13 I'm 38 so 13 years ago basically what happened was I was at rock bottom with addiction you know I'd been sold a life eh, to be a drug dealer or to be a criminal and I realised that this is not me, you know, I, I don't want this anymore I was desperate to, to find something else, to find an answer in something else and then when my son was born, I just started writing, I don't know what it was I just started writing day by day by day, you know and eventually my thoughts were on paper and then People were reading my thoughts and some of my friends were in prison so I was sending them my short stories and stuff so I was beginning to find my voice as an artist. What'd you say about my mama? I don't want any trouble, just get out! I mean, I've been obsessed with movies, you know, like, especially hood movies like New Jersey Drive, Menace to Society. And that's, for me, that's, that's the power of the art. You know, somebody from, who's sitting in a house in Edinburgh can connect 
with Carf Reefs in New Jersey, for me, that's amazing, you know. So when I watch movies like that, I would look at them and say, well, what's my version? And then I'd go away and write, you know, and it gave me a, a springboard. You know, I wanted to go and learn about how to make movies and stuff. And a local sort of community production company gave us the cameras, you know, they helped us massively. Hi. Right, so I don't want to bother. We just need some gear, mate. The first movie that I made won an, uh, an award for MTV, or it was shortlisted for an award. So that gave me, for the first time in my life, that gave me a, a different sense of identity, a different sense of achievement. And I think once I got a taste of that, I realised that I wanted more. I decided to come off of the drugs completely, and it, it was a gradual process, though. You know, coming off wasn't something that happened over a year or two years. You know, it was something that took me 10 years of hard work. This is a guy who, you know, he's been through a kind of terrible experience with chronic heroin addiction. But um, underneath all that, this was a guy who was like a genuine artist. My name is Urban Welsh. I'm the author of Trainspotting and Porno, which is the book that Trainspotting 2 was based on. I'm also the executive producer of the movie Trainspotting 2 and a friend of Gary Fraser's. I've been hearing about this guy from this housing project who was doing all this fantastic stuff, was making all these great short films. So basically, I kind of started to chat to him on, on Twitter, online, and Facebook and stuff. And basically, I was asking Irvin for advice on other stuff, and he sent me an email one day saying that Danny Boyle wants to speak to you because we're making Transporting too. Danny phoned me a week later, and he says, "I wanted to offer you, I want to offer you the job of second unit director." It would be good for your CV. But Danny says to me, I'm not handing you a bouquet of flowers. You know, the job will be boring, it'll be long hours, and, and what's going to happen is you're going to do exactly what I tell you, and then I'm not going to like it, and then you're going to go out and shoot more, and that is exactly what we did. <laughs> Even though I wasn't greatly experienced as a second unit director, I had the life experience that put me there, you know, and that was the, the biggest blessing of the movie for to get offered an opportunity from Danny to have a creative space to, to apply my craft. But for me, the difficulty is the transition after it. After you've made the feature, you have a psychological come down because it's consumed you. you. Your body almost doesn't have time to have the flu, have the cold. You're working incredible hours, you know, you're flat out. And then once that all stops, real life just kicks in. I live in what seems like poverty a bit, you know, I, I don't stay in a ghetto, but it has the same poverty-related issues, and what it means is that after the job, people start thinking that you're, you're really successful, and they have a false idea and a false expectation of what and who you are and what you're doing, you know, so I'm going to be grateful that I've made it this far, and I'm healthy, you know, a lot of people from where I come from don't make it that far, and don't get to that point. But that wasn't an end goal, starting Trainspotting 2. That was me at the start line. Gary Frazier was the second unit director for the new Trainspotting sequel, T2 Trainspotting. Some of Gary's own short films are at our website, studio360.org. Coming up, why Stephen Merritt of The Magnetic Fields wrote his memoir as a record album. 
a 50-song record album. It's a publicity stunt, like the Trump presidency. Well, I very well timed in that case. Stephen Merritt performs live in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC. In St. Thomas, barefoot beatniks bonk on a boat afloat and run. Is it there? Studio 360. Stephen Merritt, the songwriter and singer behind the Magnetic Fields, turned 50 a couple of years ago. But instead of some cliché midlife move, you know, taking time off work and entering an Ironman competition and pretending to be young, he did just the opposite. He decided to own his middle age and to go on a work binge. He wrote and recorded 50-song memoir, one song for each of the years in his first 50. Stephen told me that the inspiration actually came from a pretty unsentimental source. My record company president, Robert Hurwitz, told me over lunch that he thought it would be a great idea if I did an autobiographical album commemorating my 50th birthday. So I did it. So it wasn't a change-up of, oh, I, it's, it's time for me to become confessional. Heavens no, and I uh, probably will never be confessional again. It's just <laughs> for this album. Yeah. It's a commercial choice. It's a publicity stunt, uh, like uh, the uh, Trump presidency. Well, I very well timed in that case. Um, as you were writing this memoir, uh, did, you, did you think of Stephen Merritt as a character? Or no, I'm just, talk- I'm just talking about myself. I was I was not really thinking in terms of the long arc. I was deliberately thinking song to song, uh-huh. trying to solve the the autobiographical problems one by one, rather than solving it for the whole album. Which I guess makes it more like one lives life, one second, one day, one year at a time. I was just reading a sort of advice column about how much money you ought to have had saved up for your retirement at each age. Yes. And I thought, I'm glad my accountant thinks that stuff for me because I don't think in those long arcs. Is that why you're an artist or is it because you're an artist? I have no idea. (laughs) No way of knowing. It makes me think of whether or not you were the the child who who could wait for the five minutes for the second marshmallow or not. Were you or not? I've always hated marshmallows. Well, I guess you could have waited then. Um, I'm still waiting. (laughs) For that second marshmallow? Someday. Um, May we hear, will you play uh, I Think I'll Make Another World? Ah, that one I can play. Great. (laughs) I think I'll make another world And fill it with whatever I want can say I can or can't I can see it now I think I'll make another world It may not start out very large But no one else will be in charge I can see it now I can see it now 
once you and I, like we were very small, through the air, through the night, and through the marble hall. No one can say that's all wrong. Cause I can say, get out of my song. Cause I can see another world. And I can make it with my hands. Who cares if no one understands? I can see it now. I can see it now. The little stuff I dreamed about since I was just a zygote. The headless caryatid with her plucky seeing eye goat. No one can say that's all wrong Cause I can say, hey, it's my song And I can see another world And I can make it with my hands Who cares if no one understands I can see it now And I can see it growing And moving by itself And talking in its own way It's realer than the old That was Stephen Merritt of the Magnetic Fields playing and singing I Think I'll Make Another World. That is playing simultaneously uh, the piano and his ukulele. Well done. Impressive. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, So as you were thinking back on these 50 years, what tricks did you use? Well, my mother made me a timeline of my first 25 years and my manager made me a timeline of my second 25 years without which I wouldn't have been able to remember what happened when, because like everyone in my family, I have a terrible memory. Which is ironic for a man making his year-by-year audio memoir. Is it? A lot of people begin their memoirs with acknowledgments and say, I I can't remember my own life, but thanks to my dear wife who can. Right. Or... um, Mrs. Bertrand Russell has helped a great deal with the chronology of uh, of my life. I would love to hear another song, uh, the the one for 1991 called "The Day I Finally." All right. Now you can actually read the joke. When I do it live, mm-hmm. I have uh, a band member read the joke. So I should come I'll, up there and read the joke. Um, I can. You can do it from there. Okay. You can just bring me his iPhone if you want. Okay. You probably have to keep poking it so it doesn't right. go off. Okay. Will I know when to do this? Uh, it's when I point at you. Okay. The day I finally snap, everybody will clap. 
They'll be lining up for miles for me to slay them in the aisles. And it won't be long now. No, 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 it won't be long now till it comes to a stop. The day I finally croak Because my life is a joke Everybody will laugh Right off the end of the graph And they won't be wrong now No, 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 they won't be wrong now The day I finally Everybody will They'll be lining up for miles For me to slay them in the aisles And it won't be Long now No, no, no It won't be Long now Till it comes to a The day I finally Because my life is a There was an old man on whose nose most birds of the air could repose, but they all flew away at the closing of day, which relieved that old man and his nose. Everybody will ha 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 ha. Very well done. That, that, That was Stephen Merritt of the Magnetic Fields playing The Day I Finally Ellipsist. Uh, playing the piano, singing, um, and and ha- this wonderful little uh, percussion set involving uh, kitchen whisks and 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 extended springs and what else do you got over there? Well, it's all welded together into one odd little metal sculpture. I don't know what to call it. Uh, looks kind of robot-like. Yeah, with nifty little springs on it. Uh, explain what happens on the repeat verse with all the s- snapping and... Oh, right. So first I sing the song and then I sing it with the last word of each line uh, having a sound effect instead of the noun. So snap and clap and croak and joke are all uh, the thing itself rather than rather than the word for them. You know where where this song could have a life beyond your and my life both is in summer camp. Summer camp kids should be taught this song. Do you make royalties for summer camp usage? Mm, I, I bet there's some ASCAP BMI thing going on there. Well, maybe I'll have my publisher look into it. You're welcome. I have a song, The Book of Love, which tends to be apparently used at people's weddings which, frankly, don't pay royalties. Right. And, um, but it moves <clears> to your glory. Yes, yeah, right. Um, but but I, I'm always looking for ways to do equivalents of that that actually do pay royalties. Yes. <laughs> One of our producers spoke to you 15 years ago uh, for this program when you were doing your final performance of uh, 69 Love Songs. And I want to play a little bit of that interview where you describe how you wrote then. 
What I do is I sit around in cafes and gay bars in dark corners and listen to the music that is playing, which typically will go... Hey, yeah, hey, yeah. And then something about... Your suitcase is at the door. You say you're leaving forevermore. Or something like that. These unbelievably trite, stupid songs. And uh, it gives me ideas for better songs. There's nothing wrong with that lyric. What was I thinking? (laughs) Um, uh, Which is so, I mean, that's an interesting prompt or piece of process to write. Did you did you have any analogous thing uh, as you were making this record? Oh, yeah. I still sit around in the corners of, uh, of bars. Near a light source, though, so I can see what I'm writing. And uh, respond to the music and occasionally eavesdrop a little bit. And try to make sure that I don't look at my phone, which is unfortunately the biggest difference between then and now. I assume that means you don't have a ukulele with you or an instrument and you're just out of your head doing it? Yeah, I I don't write on instruments. Really? That's fascinating to me. That music can exist fully formed in your head without messing around on a on an instrument. Beethoven kept kept composing after he no, went I, deaf. I, I, right? I never met him. Yeah. I know. Uh it's not too late. Um, so, so you, so. In, oh wait, it is. <laughs> in what form do you do you write it down, or 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 do you just remember? I write down lyrics. Yeah, <clears throat> and then you remember. Oh, that's G A C F. Yeah, if I don't write, remember the melody, no one else will. Hmm. Which is something I got from Abba, who said that in an interview. All of them and together. I've remembered it ever since. Yeah. Huh. Uh, I don't remember which one of them said it. It was either Benny or Bjorn. Um. Uh, I have this theory that things used to change a lot more than they did. Like 1950 looked very different than 1970. 1990 looked very different than 1970. And that that stopped like 20 years, 20, 25 years ago. And I'm wondering, did you think like, whoa, the music of 1994 is indistinguishable from that of 2017? I'll go further and say, can you imagine anyone in 1967 saying – Music now sounds just like it did 20 years ago? Uh, no, Absolutely that's my point. no one. Exactly. Zero people or, would say that. Or even 87, However, 67. practically anyone over 30 would say that now. When yes. you, 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 you listen to the radio, you cannot tell whether something is 20 years old or not. Right. Uh, this is computers. Obviously, computers has helped do that, but it's also true of the way cars look. It's also true of the way fashion is. Well, conformity has become a, the, the major mode since 1990, at least. Yeah. I remember on New Year's Day of 1990 seeing the new Levi's 501 commercials about back to basics. And I thought, oh, no, that's the end of – that's the end of everything. Well, when I organize my symposium on the subject, I'm, I'm going to make sure that you're invited. Oh, please do. I can go on for six hours about this topic. Excellent. We'll do that. Um, With my usual trademark pauses. Um, you do have uh, trademark pauses. Yes. Uh, I guess we'll clean those up in post. Um, please do. Yes. <laughs> um, uh, 
Stephen Merritt, I, I, I figured this would be a pleasure, and it has been. Oh, thank you. Thank you. The new Magnetic Fields album, 50-song memoir, is out right now. And that is it for this week's episode. Studio 360 is a co-production of WNYC and PRI, Public Radio International. Our team here includes... Jocelyn Gonzalez. Andrew Adam Newman. Louis Mitchell. Daniel Guimet. Sam Kim. Skylar Swenson. Tommy Bazarian. Zoe Saunders. Max Gibson. And I'm Kurt Anderson. Thanks very much for listening. Is this album about confessional singer-songwriter songs in a similar way? I would have to hear the album again and listen for that. PRI Public Radio International. Next time in Studio 360, every industry has its own way of calling somebody a hack. For people who write movie music, it's kind of cute. Maybe in the animation world, they use the term Mickey Mousing as a more affectionate term, but when I hear it, it's usually a pejorative, I have to say. Hollywood composer Carter Burwell teaches me how to talk like him. That's next time in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC.